Good morning. Uh, it was the summer of 20, 2007, I was going to say 2017, um, and I decided to take that next step and buy a house. I met with my dad, we talked about it, we worked through all of the details, we felt that the time was right, um, the market was booming and it was never coming down, and so I went to our, uh, we went, we met, we looked at this townhouse, we thought it was perfect, we talked to the Lord, we were like, Lord, is this right? And we felt like there was a green light to go ahead and get it. Now, there was competition for it, so I ended up giving a little bit more, about 5% more than I was planning, um, but... All indications pointed that things were only and forever going up. So, um, I remember being both excited and terrified because I've never owned something so expensive and I've never owed so much money to a bank ever. And, and so, with kind of fear and trembling, I entered into this. Um, well, about a year later, my dependence on God and trusting Him with this home was put to the test. Um, the housing boom ended. The market crashed. The value of my house dropped $100,000 basically overnight, uh, never to fully recover yet. One can still believe. One can still have hope. Never yet. And I remember crying out, God, what? What? Did I hear you right? What, what's going on? And as I had my hands ringing and I was worrying about where things were going to go, I felt it very clear in my heart that the Lord just was like, Trent, you never bought this house so that it could be a blessing like that. You never bought it for the income. You bought it to have a home and to open your home for other people to have a home, to have a place to live. And instantly, I felt this strange sense of peace wash over me. Now, I can tell you this. I wish that kind of peace and trust were permanent. Here's, here's my confession for the week. As Russia began to move in with unprovoked and premeditated attacks on Ukraine, one of the first things I noticed was my stocks and ETFs. While civilians were being hit by shrapnel, I was worrying about how, how my RRSPs were being hit. The concern for Ukraine, while true, was muted by my own self-focused concern over how this conflict would affect me. But this is reasonable, right? Like the security of savings accounts, the personal confidence that comes through financial success, the influence of wealth, um, being able to be a part of elite memberships, these are reasonable things to pursue, right? It is good, right, to, to go after these things, to be responsible. Isn't this an indication that you're headed in the right direction? Um, have you ever um, thought you were headed in the right direction, only to find out that you were terribly mistaken? When I, uh, I enjoy traveling, and one of, my, one of the places I like to go is Southeast Asia. Uh, the, and the tuk-tuk drivers, they will always, with 100% confidence, guarantee that they know the destination that you want to get to. And so far, my experience has been about 20% of the time, they actually know where they're going. 
The other 80% of the time, they just drive in circles hoping to stumble upon the place where you've asked to go. And along the way, you end up finding yourselves in jewelry stores, uh, you're buying a suit, you're like all of these things. It's quite funny. Um, and so I end up, you know, telling them, no, 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 turn left here, turn right here, let's get to this destination. Or maybe the GPS has led you astray. Have you ever driven down to South Calgary and only to realize that Google doesn't even have some people's homes on their maps yet? Right? It's, not, it's a challenge. Um, one of my favorite com comedy TV shows, there's this scene um, in The Office where they are driving and the GPS says, turn right. And Michael Scott, the driver, takes it literally and starts turning down a ramp into a lake. And Dwight is saying, this is a lake. It means bear right, bear right. And he's screaming it over and over again as he just drives straight down. And he's like, it's quite an event. We can move on from that because that's just going to be forever distracting. <laughs> Can't take my eyes off of GIFs. They just keep happening. It never stops. Mark's narrative the Gospel of Mark, work with me on this one, is a little bit like Dwight. Um, warning Michael over and over and over again. You know, the GPS means bear right, bear right, don't drive into the lake. And the Gospel of Mark is saying to us over and over again, the kingdom of God looks like this. It looks like this. Entering the kingdom, go, it happens in this way. The path of the kingdom looks like this. Mark's teaching style is like the, an alarm that just warns us and reminds us. It gets our attention and it, it forces a response out of us. It's a message that gets pounded deep, deep into our minds and hearts because it's repeated over and over and over again. So what are some of these alarms that we've already been hearing in the Gospel of Mark in this part of the sermon series? Well, we've heard the dramatic he healing of the blind man who left his cloak, his one and only possession behind. We heard that the kingdom belongs to kids. We heard that without intimate prayer, there will never be deliverance. We heard that following Jesus gets difficult. It actually gets harder. We heard that racing to the front, you end up being last. And the story we heard Steph read just now is one more blare of the alarm warning us, you think you know the direction, but you don't. Um, so we have this man uh, who appears to be headed in the right direction, and yet he ends up walking away sad, dejected, confused, frustrated. So what went wrong? What was Jesus' response? And, and how, how can we end up not walking away sad and confused and frustrated when Jesus invites us to be in his kingdom? And when we take a look at this one story in the context of the entire Mark story, we see these disciples, along with this man, along with the readers, all of us, there's this disappointment, confusion, and desperation that continues to grow and grow as we move through Mark. Things are intensifying and things are getting more complicated. And we have this desperation inside that we feel, what is going on? 
How will we actually ever see and receive the good news that's behind this mark alarm that's going over and over and over again? So here's where I'd like for us to head today. We've got to talk about wealth and how it contributed to this man not following. We've got to talk about Jesus and what he did and maybe why he did it and how he did it. And then finally, we need to figure out what do we do with all of this? What do we take from this? Now, youth here that are sitting here, you might be thinking, this, this can't apply to me. I don't even have an allowance. I should get an allowance, but my parents don't give me an allowance. I don't even have any money. I don't have to make any decisions about wealth. This isn't for me. Well, I want you to know that if you can figure this out at this stage of your life, you will know and enjoy peace that maybe your parents or grandparents never knew. If we can figure out wealth and what it all means, you can enjoy a freedom that you've never had before. Now, you might be thinking as well, this doesn't apply to me at all because I'm just dirt poor. Well, the disciples, they had next to nothing, and yet Jesus directed most of his attention in this story to the disciples, and they clearly got something from this. So, we get something from this too, those of us those of you who are dirt poor. Now, you might be thinking, this does, in fact, apply to me, and I don't actually care. There are, in fact, some of us that are out there that this applies. I'm wealthy. I've got everything. I'm independent. I'm successful. I don't, and I don't really care. I'm not really interested in this message. Well, if you are here today, and that happens to be you, there's still good news for you. The way Jesus will approach you in your life is good news. And then for most of us that find ourselves in the middle, well, being in the middle, this passage is way, way, way more about more than just a conversation about money. It's more than that. Uh, it strikes at the heart of what is valued in the kingdom. Rich and poor, this story matters to us. And it offers good news that doesn't sugarcoat reality. So, let's get into the story. Uh, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you direct my words that we together could approach your son, uh, Jesus Christ, with, with attentiveness. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your scripture, Lord. We need to hear it. Uh, we need to be transformed. Amen. So, let's Let's jump into some context. So one of the things that I love about all of the, the gospel stories is that the stories that go before and the stories that go after matter, all right? So the story that took place right before this event is where Jesus' disciples were rebuking parents for bringing in children. So the children were clamoring. They're saying, like, come, like, let's bring the children. Jesus can bless them. And the disciples are like, no, 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 nope, nope, back away, back away. And then Jesus says these words. He says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, we don't need to have it written in for us to sense what the disciples' response to this could have been. I can picture them looking to each other saying, 
Did we hear this correctly? The kingdom of God belongs to such as these? To, belongs to children? This is ridiculous. Like, how can it be for kids? They don't contribute anything. Like, they're nothing. And we live in a culture now where we love and we respect children in ways that weren't really understood and respected in the ways back then. They, they were nothing. You know, and maybe they're thinking, you know, we were uncomfortable with the sick being welcomed, but whatever, we can get over that. Uh, we're a bit unsure of why Jesus is welcoming women and orphans and foreigners, but, but kids? Nah, kids just get in line, and when they're old enough, then they can come and be a part of it. So we have that story. And then after the story that is for today, we have Jesus pulling his disciples aside, and for the third time, he's telling them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and... Uh, will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So on one side, we have little useless kids. And then on the other side, we have a Messiah who is saying that he's going to sacrifice his life, be mocked and ridiculed. And right in between all of this, we have a young man who runs up to Jesus. Now, what do we know about this young man? If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to grab it and bring it out. If you don't, that's just fine too. Um, let's take a look at verse 17. All right? So, in verse 17, it's right at the very beginning, and what do we see? We can get this sense that Jesus encounters a man who was raised well. He runs over, and in reverence, he kneels down, and he cries out, Good teacher. He falls out and calls Jesus good teacher. Now, Jesus has been called teacher before, but he's never really been called good teacher. So this is a unique, respectful man, or at least that's what we might think, that he's going through this motion. The other thing that we can see right here at the very beginning is when he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a hunger for truth. He's looking for something. He's wanting something. So we have this man who's hungry for truth. And then later on, we see that when Jesus recites several bits of the Ten Commandments, this young man has worked hard from the very beginning to follow the law. He's respectful. He's hungry for truth. He's law-abiding. And after all of this, he was also wealthy. Now, the disciples, you might think that by this point along in their journey but we've started to get a sense of how Mark sees disciples. At this point, you might think that the disciples would look to Jesus and agree, and they'd be like, oh, what a shame. It's too bad that he couldn't, you know, leave his wealth behind and come follow you. You know, we left our nets behind and we followed you. It's too bad he couldn't be like us. Uh, but, oh, well, that's how it goes. You know, you could even imagine them remembering back to Jesus' teaching on the sower and the seeds. Uh, in Mark 4, uh, the parable of the sower and the seed, we, we looked at this passage back in October where there was these different soils. And I'll read it out. Still others, uh, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth 
and the desires of, uh, for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So you could assume they would have heard this teaching. They would have put these pieces together and come to these conclusions. But that is not how the story goes at all. They don't remember this teaching, which only gives further evidence to the deceitfulness of wealth. This encounter is a real-world case study of the parable of the sower, and the disciples can't even see it. The depth of the problem is true. Wealth is deceitful. It was then, and it is now. And the problem with things that are deceitful is that, well, they deceive. (laughs) Um, It causes us to believe something that is not true. Wealth has this power to cause you and I to accept as true and valid what is actually false or invalid. And wealth, if unchecked, can lead us to love broken things, act in broken ways, and lead ourselves and others further from the kingdom, all while thinking we're doing something good. If unchecked, we can start to create a theology and a way of life that diminishes others, ignores needs, and constantly twists our priorities. Wealth is deceitful. Now, this is what the disciples' real response was. These disciples saw all of this. They saw his wealth, And they did not see that as a danger. They did not see that as a problem. They saw it as an opportunity. It wasn't seen as negative at all, but more of a check on the list. The final confirmation that this guy would be worthy to go into the kingdom. He's got the pedigree. He's got the respect. He's got the hunger for truth. And to cap it all off, God has blessed him with wealth. Who else could be the 13th disciple but this guy? This is the perfect man, the perfect recruit, the perfect church member, the perfect board member. All of it seems to line up in such a way that even we would have a hard time understanding what's going on in this story. Wealth had for a long time, then and now, been seen as something of worth and worthiness. Passages like Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. We can see it uh, understood to be a divine blessing when we see passages like that. Or the entire story of Job suggests that his large estates and all of this stuff is an indication of blessing. And so we have this history. We have this, these these stories in the Old Testament, and all of this just kind of matches up with our instinct that surely the wealthy are to be favored. Why wouldn't they be? Isn't this the right direction? So when Jesus looks around and he says to the disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Of course the disciples are amazed at his words. They're amazed because like so many before them and us right now, we can't understand that. Wealth is a blessing. And Jesus knows that they aren't even close to understanding the deeper truth going on here, the bigger picture. And so he gives them and us a further illustration. Uh, The illustration in verse 24. I've always loved this one. When I was a kid, I pictured, tried to picture camels going through needles and it was a disaster. And one time I read C.S. Lewis's quote about like, oh, you could get the camel 
through the eye of the needle, and you'll just end up with a long, stringy, bloody mess. And I was like, oh, wow, C.S. Lewis, you said that? All right. But this is what he says, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so we have this desire, when, even when we read this, to want to wanna, like, do stuff with this. And I want to just take us down a little bit of a path. We are often tempted to divert or redirect when we hear this. It's very tempting for us to look at that and say, uh, th- that, that doesn't apply to me. Like, I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy. That person is. That, this story is about them. But then, you know, have someone who's down the line a little further looking at you saying, oh, that applies to that person, and so forth and so on. And at the end of the day, all of us are held accountable when we read this story. We can't escape it. Uh, we just kind of want to dismiss it and divert it. We just think that it doesn't apply to us. But the disciples, when they heard this teaching, they knew it applied to them. They were stricken by it. They didn't know what to do about it. They're like, uh, if, if this is what you're saying to be true, then we're all in trouble. Now, the other thing that's tempting for us to do is for us to diminish it. And this has been popular throughout Christian history for how we read this text. Um, one that is quite common is that there's this desire for us to make, make the camel smaller or make the needle, the, whole, the, the eye of the needle, larger. So um, there is this tradition that the eye, the needle's eye, was supposedly the name of a low gate in Jerusalem. A low gate where it required a camel to throw off all of its luggage and baggage, bend down on its knees, and squeeze through this hole, making it completely vulnerable to the people on the inside. It's a great story. It's a great picture. I actually, I've preached that in the past, and I loved it because it created the image of, oh, Wealth isn't the problem. Like, none of being rich isn't an issue. All you have to do is make sure you're humble, and then everything is taken care of. Done. Check. Problem solved. But that image, while there were, in fact, gates that were like that, there's no credible, strong attachment to this story. The Greek just doesn't line up the way we would like it to line up. Amen. Oh, that, that means a lot coming from uh, Dr. Snow over there. Um, but here's the other thing. There, there's this Aramaic tradition that the word camel got mistranslated and actually doesn't mean camel at all, but actually means like a ship's cable or a thick rope. So there's this attempt to make the camel smaller. Now that one doesn't really add up anyways because if you've got a needle with a sm- like the eye of a needle and you still have a thick rope, it's still not working. But what we see from this is there's been a long history and tradition of us trying to make this story palatable and make it work for us in the rich West. But at the end of the day, we can't escape the challenge that wealth is deceitful and it messes with us. It messes with how we see people and how we see this world. We want to divert. We want to diminish. I do. I don't, I don't want to talk about this. Uh, I want us to be able to move on to something different. You feel the tension when you look at a story like this. But even as I reflected on all of this and the challenge, I kept asking the Lord, Lord, what is, what is that one point, what is that one thing that we are driving towards for us as a church to hear today in all of this? 
at the core, what is really going on? Because we know it's not just about property. Jesus didn't ask homeowners that he stayed in as he's leaving saying, oh, by the way, can you sell your home and then come follow me, right? These things didn't happen. When, When he said, I'm coming over to your home, Zacchaeus, he didn't ask Zacchaeus to give back four times. He didn't ask him to do that. He did say that that was a salvation has come to you, but it wasn't a requirement or a request. And so we have this tension. It's not quite always about possessions and what we own and property, but at the same time, we can't ignore that wealth, wealth will interfere with our enjoyment of and entrance into the kingdom. So where does this all lead us? What's the alarm in this story for us today? What's the warning? Well, the key is found in the very first word of the young ruler. And what is that first word? Good. Good. That's right. This man entered the situation believing something fundamentally flawed, a flaw fueled by his wealth his tradition, his community, and even his reading of the law. The man believes, as the disciples did, as many people in today's culture that we believe that we are challenged by, that the secret to eternal life, the secret to the good life, the secret to the kingdom of God is be good. But Jesus' response to this is telling. Why do you call me good? No one is good. I feel that God is like kind of directing us towards this, that that there's this lie, there's this deeper lie going on that the keys to the kingdom are found in being good enough. And you can subtly see it in the questions that this man even asks. What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What project do I need to take on? What test do I need to pass? What's the checklist that I have to fulfill? How do I compare myself to other people so I know who's in and who's out? And it's all about what do I do to get that? Now, I believe this young man, like many of us, had this instinct that something wasn't quite right because he had all of the externals, right? He had the checklist. He had everything affirmed. Why did he come to Jesus at all? Why didn't he just stay at home knowing the truth that he's in the kingdom? It's going to be fine for him. Clearly it is. He, at some level, and this is me reading into the text, at some level was not confident in his tradition. At some level, he wasn't confident that his checklist was good enough. He was looking for confirmation. But why go to Jesus? Why go to this strange prophet? There was a hunger for him to go deeper and to figure something out. And I think that's true for all of us. Deep down, we know that we will never perform well enough. We know that we will never receive enough approval from others. That we'll never be good enough. And that frustration lies deep in our hearts. And it, it's hard and frustrating. So what's the key point? Good will never be good enough. Good people don't inherit eternal life. That kind of sounds like terrible news, actually, to be honest. Heaven cannot be earned. 
You will never tip the scales with being good enough. Good people don't gain access to the kingdom. Good people don't inherit eternal life. And the lie that good will work, that it will make it right, is made all the more difficult when it's fueled and tangled up in wealth. It makes it harder to even see what's going on here. It makes it even harder when when wealth is involved in mine and in our lives, our ability to live in and enjoy trusting God's rule and reign is complicated. And on those days when I think highly of myself and I'm like, oh, I did a good job of that thing, I want to dismiss what is going on here and believe that the kingdom is for those who do good because I just did something good. And I want that, and I I want my exclusion. I don't want those people in because they're different than me. These are the temptations that are always at work in our hearts. We live in a world consumed by this, with the belief that our identity is attached to our outward successes. We can't escape it. You know, and this this is just the challenge we find ourselves in. You know, and even if you have nothing, the chances are you wish you could have wealth. So you're wrapped up in this too. You know, we're, we're, you're not off, you know, you're not scot-free from the challenge going on here. And the more we focus on the acquisition of, of items and feeding our appetites and our self-gratification, we deaden the instinct and the ability for self-sacrifice. The more we focus on what we can gain, the more we can't see the kingdom as a gift. If this passage can do one thing for us today... Let it be that it convinces you once and for all that it is impossible for you to inherit eternal life. You can't do it. And so the disciples, rightly so, respond, well, then who can be saved? This is impossible. You can hear the desperation in their voices and they're teetering on the edge of hopelessness. They've been walking with Jesus for how long and now they're being told it's impossible. No one can get in. And now you might be asking yourself, Trent, this is all terrible news. Like, why have you spent 25 minutes attempting to convince us that good people will never inherit eternal life? Well, that's right. That's exactly what I've been driving at. That's exactly what I think God is leading us to in this scripture. And that the sooner we understand that, the sooner our future can be in God's hands, the sooner we can be free to enjoy the kingdom and its fruit. The weeds of wealth and the concerns of this world choke out good news. But don't worry, that's not where we're ending. We're not going to stop right on that point. Hidden in the middle of this entire story, we have verse 21. And for my sake, this verse is so critical. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at this man who had it all figured out, who had it all, who in desperation came forward. He looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. He loves you and he loves me. You might be hearing all of this and have no intention of following Jesus. Here's something for you to hear. Jesus looks at you and he loves you. He looks at you And he loves you. And this is the start of the 
good and beautiful news that is in this story, that Jesus would look at us and love us. And then the story continues on, right? Where Jesus turns to his disciples and they ask that question, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. And we can't get past that. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible with God. Every human instinct directs us away from God and towards believing that we can do it, that man can do it. But this story keeps pushing us back and back and back again that we can't and we never could, and this is really, really good news. I'll conclude with this. The Apostle Paul, a man in many ways similar to this rich young ruler, says in Philippians 3-4, as he makes an account of his life, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. This man had it all. If anyone was going to get into the kingdom of God, it would have been Paul. And without an encounter with Jesus, Paul would have likely remained in that belief, in that lie for his entire life. And without an encounter from the Holy Spirit, you will continue to believe that you can find your own way to salvation. We desperately need an encounter with the living God. Paul didn't stay in that lie. He goes on to say, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Something took place in Paul's life that reoriented everything. He had an encounter with Jesus that flipped the script, allowed him to see the kingdom for what it truly is. And my prayer for all of us is that we would have that same encounter with the living Jesus Christ, the one who came, the one who frees. Because as long as you keep thinking you're going to have to be good enough, you will never be free. You will never know freedom. And so what do we do with this? Well, the first thing is, is see the grace There is so much grace. It all comes back to grace. Good people don't inherit the kingdom. Forgiven people do. Good people don't inherit the kingdom. Forgiven people do. So first, if you don't know this grace, if you've not yet asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, do that today. Make that decision today to put your life into his hands if you've never given up your need to define yourself by your successes, your wealth, your approval of others, I invite you to give all of that up now, today, and keep giving it up every day. Good will never be good enough. You will only know freedom after you surrender these things into the arms of a loving God. Would you do that today? For those of you that are at home watching online, online, would you do that today? 
Would you make that decision? And then secondly, for those of us that are here and hearing all of this and having made those decisions, um, here's, here's a, something that we could do. Here's a practical option. When you're doing your taxes, if you haven't done them already, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see clearly. As you review your finances this week or this, at the end of this month, would you do this? Would you ask the Lord, Lord, wealth is deceiving. Help me to see your truth. Would you do that? I will do that. I'll be honest, I'm kind of scared to do that. There's always that instinct, that, that fear. And as my 40th birthday approaches, yes, in just one month from now, I turn the big 4-0. These things have only gotten worse. They've only increased. It's only gotten harder to let go. I remember when I was 20 and I had nothing. I was like, oh, I'll give you everything. I'll go anywhere. And now I'm like, uh, uh Lord, help me. <laughs> help me. Help all of us, right? It gets hard. And we need to acknowledge that. Um, but I have this to cling to, and so do you. Jesus looked at that man and loved him. And if you honestly present your life, your finances, your wealth before God, he will respond to you in love. And if he convicts you, it's because he loves you and he wants you to enjoy his kingdom. Imagine what it would be like for all of us to not hide our finances from God, but to open up the books and to trust him. We will have a freer, more joy-filled community. We will have a people who, who pray for Ukraine instead of checking stocks. Imagine a community who is rooted in grace, knows that it's not about good enough so that we have space to welcome everyone. This is good news. And I would encourage us to walk from this place either first saying yes to Jesus if you have not yet done so. And secondly, take the risk, put your finances in front of him and say, Lord, is something wrong here? Help me to see more clearly. Help me to take honest stock of what's going on in my pocketbook. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are good in this story, Jesus, you said that no one is good except for God, God alone. God, you are good and rooted in everything is your goodness. You look at us right now and you love us. You look at us whether we're squirming because we're not sure what we're supposed to do with our income and our wealth. You look at us whether we're interested in it or not and you love us. And we hold so tightly to that because we know that we can get blown around and tossed and uncertain, but at the end of the day, we can be rooted in the truth that you love us and that what is impossible for us is not impossible for you, God. You made a way. You made a way for everyone to be able to enter the kingdom, for all who turn to you, Lord Jesus, and believe in your name and trust in you, find salvation. May we all turn to you today and forever saying, I trust you with my life and I will not look to my successes or my wealth as an indication of my worthiness, but may I look just to you. Lord Jesus, we love you. 
I ask that you would transform our community and transform our families. May we be a people of trust that know that you love us and free knowing that we will never be good enough. Thank you so much, Lord. Amen. Friends, it's been a pleasure. May you go in peace uh, and in the strength of our Lord. Amen. Shine.